Welcome to the Sugar Science. Our uh, mission is to help scientists connect, collaborate, and gain access to funding for their best ideas. We're very excited to be hosting Dr. Uh, Alexandra Smink. She's at the University of Medical Center Groningen. She has a section appointment in endocrinology and does, uh, Groningen is lo located in the Netherlands, for those of you who don't know. Um, in 2018, she was awarded the Young Investigator uh, JDRF Award. And then most recently in September, she was awarded the EASD Rising Star Award, you know, this September 2020, which is just amazing. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And so I just wanted to briefly talk to you and just celebrate that you're getting these uh, awards. Uh, we're excited to hear about your work, but just wanted to ask you, like, what got you scientifically interested in studying type 1 diabetes? Well, to be honest, there at first there was not a particular reason why I got interested in type 1 diabetes research. I just I saw the vacancy for my PhD back then. I was just interested. Vacancy looks looked interesting and I was attracted by the type of work that was included. And then so I rolled into it and then after the four years of my PhD I I just felt it was not finished yet. So I wanted to continue and that's why I I'm still doing what I'm doing and I hope that I can contribute a, a bit to the type 1 diabetic research field. Yeah, well, I think you really have already. So that's, you know, it's really fortunate that you were able to find some interesting work within the field and now you're contributing greatly to it. So thank you for all you're doing. So what, what was it that in the, in the beginning, you know, uh, the postdoc work that you did that kind of get you excited about type 1 diabetes and what were you actually doing? So with type 1 diabetes uh, option for some of the patients that cannot control their blood glucose levels very well uh, by injecting insulin or having an insulin pump for example, uh, these patients sometimes get a, a islet transplantation so that the body can regulate the insulin uh, and the glucose homeostasis itself again um, and this is now done uh, into the liver, uh, transplanting islets into the liver. Mm -hmm. um, but after five years, um, this trend, the, the transplant, the islets kind of stopped working, or there, uh, so many of them already died that they that they that the patient is back to where they started before the transplantation. So it has to inject insulin again. And I really got interested by that. By like, the, there's a lot of other researchers who looked into. The human body and to find another place to transplant the islets but none of them appear to be more successful than the liver so that's why the liver is still used but then we during my phd i we came across with a solution like uh, making an artificial transplantation site for islets so making this ideal house for islets where they hopefully can live for a long long time and then more people can be helped uh, with transplantation yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about the the structure you developed during that time for implantation? Yeah, so it, my PhD was based on uh, selecting a material to make uh, such a house for these islets. And uh, we tested several materials that were already used in the clinic, but for other purposes. And so we tested uh, several materials because uh, the islets can react on different materials. You cannot just put them in any material. The, these islets are really uh, sensitive little organs 
and that, that change their behavior when they encounter different materials. So in the end, one material came out, one polymer came out that was, um, that for us in vitro and in vivo worked very well together with the islets. And um, we did a, a mouse experiment where we transplanted uh, islets within, under the skin within my device uh, in a diabetic mouse and then transplanted islets in there. And it resulted in normal blood glucose levels for the whole uh, study. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's where my PhD kind of ended and where I continued with the postdoc where I wanted to further improve improving this, uh, this side, this artificial transplantation side. And so I'm assuming you're dealing with hydrogels as well as, you know, trying to mitigate fibrosis at the same time you're trying to encourage angiogenesis, right? So it's, you've got many moving parts as you try to transplant the beta cells um, into the, uh, their new environment. Yes. And so, yeah, and they also have to, right, you have to send them in, they're uh, oxygen sensitive, so you have to think about that. And so what, in the laboratory now, in your, in your lab, you know, what are you focusing on, what are you doing? Uh, are you trying to dissect and optimize the system or what's going on? For the original uh, device, what we did is we implanted the device four weeks before we transplanted the islet. So we placed the device under the skin. So it's a really porous device and we placed it under the skin before introducing the islets in, to allow blood vessels to grow in and also to allow the, the fibrotic response or the immune response that you always get when you implant something, right? To, to dampen that already. So we left it in for four weeks and then we transplanted the islets in. So that's kind of unique in our approach, I think. Yes. Um, so there we already a little bit focused on getting a nicely vascularized pocket. But um, the last few years, I realized that the vascularization is way more important than we thought in the beginning, I think. And uh, so I, I kind of try to mimic um, the vascularization and the, but also the extracellular matrix uh, within the native pancreas. So the, within the native pancreas, uh, the islets are highly vascularized and they contain a nice layer of extracellular matrix. And I, these are all lost during transplantation. So I want to make a, a transplantation site that kind of restores the vascularization and the extracellular matrix altogether to make this ideal home for these islets. Mm. So you really, your hope is to create almost like a, um, the optimal environment before you even put the uh, cells in. So yes. if that's the case, then do they, do they um, have less, I mean, you can become more fully um, differentiated. You could put, put in a more differentiated um, beta cell versus currently they're putting in sort of like, you know, um, not fully differentiated because of the oxygen requirements. Yeah, so I think if you already make this nicely vascularized pocket and ideal environment, then any cell type you will put in would benefit from it because it already has immediate access to the to the to the bloodstream, like to the to oxygen, for example, and uh, yeah, so it makes it a bit easier for the cells to survive. And it's it's also I think in this way less cells die immediately after transplantation. Yeah. So you can use less islets or beta cells to 
to treat one patient. And then in the end, that would mean uh, that you can transplant more patients with less donors. Yeah. Um, and we all know that there is a donor shortage. So yes, that, um, that, that's my goal to transplant with less islets. And hopefully, uh, definitely, I think it will be also beneficial for transplanting with just beta cells from, from stem cells, for example, because also these cells need to have a good connection with, with the rest of the body. So yeah, when you're doing this, um, when you're prepping or, you know, prepping the implantation stage, uh, are you, what part of the animal are you, um, you know, doing this in? Is it, is it in the omentum or is it on the back or where, where's the optimal site that you're finding it's uh, best? Yeah, so we place in animal, we place it uh, on, the, on the back, under the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, we do it under the skin because it's really like an easy surgery. Just have to make a small cut. And since we have like now how we do it now, we implant it. And then four weeks later, you have to make another incision. So uh, just to making a small incision in the skin is less invasive uh, than doing it, for example, in the omentum. Yeah. And then can you just provide the beta cells using a, a cannula or I mean, how do you, do you surgically transplant them or how does it work? Yeah. So the, so the scaffold contains, uh, the, the, our device contains, uh, yeah, depending on the size and how many cells we're going to transplant in, but it, it contains uh, small rods in the device that are, are there already when we uh, implanted the first time. And then when we want to transplant islets, we can pull out these rods. So then you have some channels in your device that are free from selling growth. And then uh, we can, uh, with a cannula, we can inject these islets into these channels. Fantastic. And how long are you finding that these, um, you know, these, uh, these implants are lasting in your models? So, uh, the longest what we did in uh, uh, rats was up to a few months. And um, well, that's the difficulty, right, with rats and mice models because the mice and the rats get older and then can also die from being old. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think for really long term studies, we should, uh, yeah, should go to another uh, animal model. Um, and I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm also uh, testing. Uh, the devices in pigs as well so um but i did not do a long-term study there yet mm-hmm. yeah well we've had a little bit of a uh hiatus here with covid unfortunately yeah. so yeah but that um yeah that seems like a, a good next step we have viasite here in the u.s i'm, no, I'm sure you're aware in san diego and they're um implanting you know beta uh packets basically into the porcine model um but yeah, yeah. I did a lot of my animal work i did in my postdoc i did most uh, well almost most of it i did in uh, in irvine at the university of california in irvine yes um, with professor lakey and professor botvinik yes they're both uh, excellent scientists and um we're big fans of uh, elliot botvinik um so and john lakey too but um, I think that, um, yeah, so I think that this new idea is really fascinating. And I wondered, you know, what have you seen in terms of the fibrosis? That's always a problem, right? Because the body tries to uh, heal itself, the foreign body response kicks in, and then, oh, shoot, now you've choked off the blood supply to the, 
new. Yeah, so yeah, that's always uh, there needs to be a delicate balance, I think, because you kind of need some kind of the, uh, the fibrosis or the foreign body response to get to get vascularization in your device. I think if there's no response at all, then you also don't get any vascularization, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So um, when we when we selected the materials, at first we implanted just all the materials without any eyelets or whatever under the skin and, and checked at several time points how the foreign body response was and, the, and how the vascularization went. And then I think we uh, so we ended up with the mat- with the material that uh, does not provoke a really big immune response. It's it's minor, but uh, um, good enough to get vascularization ongoing. And so I don't really had problems in my animal experience, at least with fibrosis, that there is not enough oxygen coming through the device or something like that. Mm, okay, that's very good. Can you comment on the material that you're uh, referencing? Yeah, so so uh, it's yeah the short name is PDLLCL. It's polydialectide co-caprolactone. Ooh, <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> yeah, a lovely chemical name. Um, yes, I so I'm not a chemist, so don't ask me all the details about material. But um, uh, it 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 is already used in the clinic. For example, uh, there's a, a company that makes uh, nerve guides from the, this material. So when there's nerve defect, they can cover it with this material uh, to help it uh, recover. Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, it's it's a it, it looks a lot of it's a kind of the polycaprolactone is a more used polymer, and I think it, it gives kind of similar responses and uh, results uh, than the, the PDLLCL. So uh, it's it's pretty. I think it's. Uh, well, it's uh, kind of similar, so uh, that's maybe may more familiar for people uh, that are using that. There are some devices made of that as well. This is just so totally hypothetical, but what is your thought about um, how you know how long you might be able to get this to last once you work out you know all the variables? Yeah, that, that's that's definitely interesting because then you get a question like, do you want something that degrades over time or that its taste should stay over time? Yeah. Um, and I think, so in the way my device is now, um, it fully it kind of, so the cells grow in, right? From the body, the blood vessels grow in. So uh, one thing that my device is not, that it, the islands are not protected against the immune system. Because yeah, the blood vessels they go in. All the cells come really close to these islets, so also immune cells can come close. Um, so, but if you uh, just leave out the immune part for a little bit, then and uh, well, if your device can totally integrate within the human body, uh, I don't think it's a bad thing in the long term. Because then, if it's uh, if your polymer degrades at some point, but you have this nicely highly vascularized um, environment, maybe some nerves growing in, extracellular matrix there, then the islets don't need anything more than that. So then it's okay that this kind of support structure is gone at some point. Yeah. So uh, either way, kind of, it will be, 
it, it could be it could be beneficial either way. So if it stays around, you know, you could easily extract it. But if it just dissolves or disintegrates or is overgrown, I guess, then that's also fine too. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, okay, so let's just kind of get out with, a, you know, our thinking caps for like a thought experiment. What, how, how could we best protect the implant, you know, once angiogenesis happens and um, the immune system now can see the implant? Uh, how could we, I mean, are, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, we, I've yes. talked to some other people about like um, almost mimicry of the placental situation where you have um, like the trophoblastic cells have HLAG and that's supposed to be a protective molecule. The, yeah. Yeah, you know, the pancreatic beta cells are supposed to have that on them. But I mean, what do, what do you envision? Yeah, so... Um... So my EASD Rising Star Award was uh, based on a proposal I wrote about combining my device together with a uh, encapsulation. Uh, so uh, within our lab, we also do uh, work on um, encapsulating islets in uh, alginate, for example. Right. Uh, so then they have a, like a little membrane around them that protects them from the immune system, but allows oxygen and nutrients um, and, and the glucose and the insulin to diffuse in and out. Um, so one, one option is to combine uh, my device with encapsulated islets. Um, and we, doing, we are doing some experiments with that now, um, because with, so then also the vascularization maybe is even more important because uh, well, there is a little barrier between the islets and the vascularization. So the vascularization should be really close. The blood vessels should be really close to uh, to minimize the diffusion distance of uh, oxygen and nutrients as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, another thing I'm also working on is, for example, using uh, mesenchymal stem cells. They mm -hmm. are known to have immunomodulatory properties. Yes. Uh, but also stimulate vascularization. So if you could use these cells uh, together, the co-transplant together with the islets, you maybe can make a local uh, immunoprotected pocket within your device, um, but also still have a, a vascularization. Yeah, um, yeah, I like how you say that, uh, uh, an immunoprotective pocket. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, uh, we should think about something that is better than systemic immunoprotection, I think, because, well, we all know that it has kind of, it has detrimental effects on your other organs in long term, and um, uh, and even it is not always protecting fully against immune rejection. So, uh, yeah, that's also, I think, one of the challenges the field still faces to find an approach where we can do it, like, with local immunosuppression or without, or, yeah, something like that. How thick is the, uh, um, you know, the alginate uh, encapsulation uh, membrane? Oh, the membrane itself, um, mm -hmm. really, really thin. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think also I, I don't know the the size of the membrane itself, but um, I think if you encapsulate islets with the membrane, then it's about then the whole thing is about six hundred micrometer right. big. So it makes the eyelids a bit bigger, but um, that's why we also have had to adjust the device to make it possible to transplant encapsulated eyelids in it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder, you know, it is kind of weird, isn't it? That, um, you know, that this sort of HLAG was a couple years back was kind of a hot topic and people were looking at it like, Oh, this HLAG molecule confers, um, you know, immunoprotection for, um, the placenta for the placental trophoblastic cells. And hmm, this is really interesting. Laura Krissa was down at Scripps and she did some work showing that the HLAG was localized um, to, uh, you know, to different uh, membrane regions on the pancreatic beta cells as well. And like, if that, if the pancreatic beta cells have HLAG and they're expressing it, why isn't that, why doesn't that not confer immunoprotection to them. I, I, it's just curious, like once you get your islet implants in there, shouldn't they still have HLAG? Shouldn't they still, um, and these are like from stem cells, shouldn't they be able to protect themselves from the immune system or is it just too late? Yeah, so I don't, I don't know much about this part of, of, this, of the research field, but um, I guess a lot of things are uh, damaged uh, for islets at least if you tra if you uh, isolate the islets for transplantation like the vascularization the ecm is yeah. also a really tiny layer around these islets but it's still damaged and has a large impact on the function and survival of the islet so i can imagine that the same happens with this igd yeah uh, um, and i yeah i, I would if you could recover that, but then, um, then you, I, I don't know how it works with the autoimmune response that in the first, like, like at first your out, yeah, your immune system already destroys your own beta cells. So apparently they can protect, cannot protect themselves. Yeah. So I'm not sure how it works if you then trans, with transplantation, uh, um, if, if such a thing is then, good enough to also protect them against the autoimmune response. Yeah. I do think that you're right about this whole idea of a local, uh, almost like an immunoprotective fence around the, the, you know, the immunoprotective pocket idea is just really, um, seems the, the you know, the best way to go, um, to, to really make this happen. Um, what about this, um, in terms of the extracellular matrix, what are you doing in terms of the extracellular matrix components? So, yeah, so um, I already mentioned shortly the mesocarma stem cells for the vascularization and immunoprotection, but another uh, good thing about these mesocarma stem cells is that they also uh, produce extracellular matrix molecules. Um, so that's one way we try to improve uh, the ECM uh, after transplantation. Uh, and another thing uh, is that I, I'm, I'm working on is uh, you can, for example, um, get pancreatic specific ECM, extracellular matrix, by decellularizing uh, pancreatic tissue. Mm. Uh, and we can make then an hydrogel out of this pancreatic ECM mm. and add that to the pores of our scaffold mm. and then uh, use that for transplantation. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that sounds like you're really making something that's, um, it really seems to have all the bells and whistles that it needs. So, I mean, it's very exciting work. It's really interesting, um, you know, to hear that now you're kind of, you know, you've got some great data from the mice models and the rat models, and now, you know, the next steps are sort of just waiting, correct? 
Yes, there, there's a lot of things that still need to be figured out, but that's the that's the nice challenge of research. I think I I like that's what I like about my work. Yeah. It's never done. <laughs> Yeah, it is never done. That's for sure. What do you have? Do you have any, um, you know, lab students working for you now? And if uh, would you like to sort of like give any advice to younger scientists who are trying to, you know, make their way through this these challenging times of the pandemic? Yeah. So I I have a, a PhD student working for me uh, with me on the MSc project on the Mescom stem cell project. Um, and yeah, I, 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 um, yeah, it's, it's definitely challenging during this Corona time, I think, but yeah, we just, um, we have to deal with it, I guess. So, uh, you, sh I, I advise and help the students in our lab with doing a lot of writing. If you are not able to, uh, do any lab work, right. If you can write, a, even if you can write a review, um, if you don't have enough data to publish yet or, but then at least you uh, use your time to uh, well, get your name out of there, but also to 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 um, to read up, uh, re read all the the current knowledge where you normally don't have much time to read because you have to do lab work. Yeah, true. Yes, and I I yeah I just hope that everybody is uh, can stay motivated and uh, is eager to get in the get back in the lab as soon as it's uh, possible again. Um, yeah. I don't know how it, how it is in, in the US at the moment, but we were allowed in here in the Netherlands, we were allowed to get back in the lab for a few months over the summer. But now the, yeah, the, they say a second wave is coming in. So we are probably from tomorrow, we're gonna have, uh, have to, we getting more regulations again. So I'm not sure our lab work can continue, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Safe and healthy, yeah. um, and it, and I would say to PhD students if they are uh, if they are stressing out because of uh, not finishing or things or because of the Corona, then yeah, talk to your supervisor and uh, just tell them how you feel because I think uh, that's the best way to deal with it. Yeah, I agree. Communication is really key. And I also, um, it has been so variable. I've, we've spoken to people, all, scientists all over the world, and it has been very variable. Some people are totally back in. Some people are not back in at all. Some people yeah. are back on suspended schedules. So, and I'm sure this is all going to change yet again. So it is very, it's very uncertain times. But um, like you said, there's still a lot that can be done. And um, even you know a lot of people are looking through their RNA-seq realms of data over here in the East Coast. <laughs> that kind of data can always be looked at but um, yeah I, I do think it's great and every, all of the, the PIs and all of the um, you know the scientists uh, who are in positions of advis advisorial uh, positions have been so supportive about their students so it's a great message from you as well. Um, I guess uh, I, I guess I would just like to thank you one more time for all your all the work you're doing. Um, this whole system is amazing, and I would encourage people to look for your uh, last paper if you just want to give a shout out about it. Oh, you, you so you mean my hydrogen sulfide paper or yeah, yes. 
Yes, so it's uh, published in Biomolecules in 2020. And um, so the thing was, uh, so we want, so we use hydrogen sulfide, which is a gas to try to improve the vascularization as well of the device. So if anybody's interested in that, then please read it. Yes, definitely read it. Hydrogen sulfide, just, I mean, you know, uh, I would, you know, I think it's a very novel approach and it's, uh, and it worked, so it was great. Um, thank you again for speaking to us, Alexandra, uh, and we wish you all the best, and we're definitely going to be watching your work as uh, you continue to grow and add value. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I uh, really enjoyed it.